Sermon on the Mount. Today is the final day in this series that we've been in for the last two months. And uh, we have been moving chunk by chunk through this famous, uh, this famous piece of, of proclamation, the most well-known speech uh, ever given in human history. And today we get to the very last paragraph, which Mel read for us. Jesus ends this sermon, not in the way you would kind of expect the most amazing sermon ever preached to end. He doesn't end it with a whole bunch of rah-rah or inspiration or some acronym or six points of action or something like that. He ends it with a very stern and sobering series of warnings. Okay? And so... um, Today, we're going to dive in to this last little section and try to really pay attention to what it is that Jesus is cautioning his followers of. And I want to invite us to assume that we are among those that would do well to pay attention to these cautions, that we would do well to assume that he's speaking to us. And so he uses this parable in verses 24 through 27 to talk about what people will do with the words that he has spoken in this sermon. And he uses the parable of a house that's built either on the rock or built on the sand. And a house is a metaphor for your life. And the rock or sand is the metaphor for what is the foundation that you are building your life upon. And so he says, if you will hear these words and put them into practice, you're like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. But if you hear these words and don't put them into practice, then you're like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. Okay? Now, it's hard for us to understand because here in Central Oregon, we've all built our houses upon the rock. If you've ever tried to do any yard work, um, if you can see a volcano from your house, yard work is not going to be fun. We didn't really have a choice, but uh, I guess that means we're wise. So, here's how I want to come at, come at this. There's a, in, sociolo- in sociology, there's a theory known as the information to action ratio. And it has to do with the amount of information that we consume that is either actionable or inactionable. That when we take in news or new information, uh, how much of that information actually demands or requires some sort of response or, uh, or reaction from us. And so up until a few hundred years ago, our society had an incredibly high information to action ratio. Right? So before uh, email and social media and the computer and even before the TV and the radio and the telegraph, it was incredibly hard to get messages out other than in your uh, very local region. Right? You would have to send a herald or a messenger to travel across the country or, or wherever if you wanted to spread news about what was going on in your part of the world. And so almost all of the information that people were consuming on a regular basis was hyper-localized. It was very specific to probably their town or to their village or to their tribe. And there really wasn't what we know of as news 
at a national or especially global level. And so for the most part, everything that you would hear, the news about what was happening in the world, was going to be pertinent to your life and therefore most likely actionable. So for example, a few hundred years ago, if you're living in a small kind of remote village somewhere, the way you would get the news that Farmer John's barn is on fire is somebody would run to your door and and knock in the middle of the night and wake you up and tell you Farmer John's barn is on fire. That was the news of the day. And if that was the news you took in, that was the information you took in, you wouldn't just go back to sleep. That was news that required a response. Right? So part of that communal, familial culture of many of these small towns and villages was that this information would require some action. So you wouldn't go back to sleep. You'd grab your bucket and you'd head to Farmer John's and do whatever you can uh, to put the fire out. And that's how it was for most of human history. Up until just the last few hundred years, there was a very high information-to-action ratio. But then that all began to change. And we might think, yeah, of course, with the internet and social media, it started changing way before that, probably around the time of the telegraph, which was the first time you could instantaneously uh, communicate news or information from one part of the world to to the other. That there's a new king, or a battle's been won, or there's some sort of disaster that's taken place, um, or new discovery that's been made. The recipient of that news, for the very first time, all of a sudden was consuming information that was not actionable. That they simply are now informed that this has happened in England or in China or in Washington, D.C., and I'm sitting here in Oregon going, well, there's nothing I can do about that, but at least now I know it. And obviously, then, that's just accelerated over the last couple hundred years and even just in our generation with the acceleration of the information age. We now are consuming an an unbelievable amount of information, and a very small percentage of it actually requires action on our part. We're very well informed. So the guy who really has spent a lot of time developing this theory is a sociologist named uh, Neil Postman who wrote a book in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Let me read you just a, um, a little quote from that book. He says, The tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it, don't know what to do with it. So obviously... From the time of the telegraph to the age of the iPhone, things have only accelerated even more. And he's writing in 1985. So we are now consuming daily an unbelievable amount of non-actionable information. We get news updates in real time on our phones, sports scores, election results, whatever it is that's going on. And none of that is, there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I would be expected to do. I'm simply just consuming information. And what has happened is that as a society, we have been trained. Our minds have been trained. Our bodies have been trained. That it's good to consume as much information as possible. 
without thinking at all about what action it would require from us. And so what I want to say this morning is that as a society that now has a very, very low information to action rate, which the acronym low information action rate would be? Liar. Liar. <laughs> Interesting. We know a lot, we hear a lot, we understand a lot, we're well informed, but we don't do anything about it. I think puts us directly in the crosshairs of those who Jesus is warning in the end part of this sermon. What he says so clearly in verse 24 is that it's not enough to simply hear these words of his. He goes, everyone who hears these words, everyone's going to hear them, but the difference is there are those who will put them into practice. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? This isn't just about information or inspiration. Jesus is shooting for transformation. He's saying it's not enough just to hear these words and be informed or inspired by them. My teachings need to reorient your entire life. Your mind, your heart, your body, your soul, your will, your affections. These teachings are meant to be practiced, done, acted out, lived, not just heard or understood or agreed with or something like that. And so that's what Jesus does so clearly here in this final passage. He goes, okay, you've all heard my words now, but what are you going to do with them? How are you going to let these words, this vision of the kingdom, this command for my new humanity, how are you going to allow that to shape your life and shape your practice and shape your priorities? And so... Um, from Sunday school, many of us remember the song that the rains came down and the floods came up. Um, this isn't a cute story. This isn't natural disaster. This is terrible. <clears throat> Jesus uses the metaphor of storms to describe the worst things that can happen in the human experience. The hardship, the loss, the suffering, the pain, the brokenness, the disease. Jesus says, first of all, that the storms are going to come. So the metaphor isn't that if you build your house on the rock, there won't be any storms. We'd like to think that were the case, right? He goes, no, the storms will come. Life will be hard. The difference is, what foundation are you building your life on? And he goes, those that would build their life on the obedience and practice of my teachings, they're wise. They're thoughtful. They're the ones whose life won't collapse when the storms come. And those who build their lives on the sand, which we don't really know exactly what he had in mind, and that's probably the brilliance of his communication, that if either the rock is obedience to Jesus' teaching, the sand is anything else. Building your life on any other foundation, any other goal or pursuit or philosophy or worldview or ambition, any of that, no matter how highly culture esteems it, he goes, it's sand. 
It doesn't care about you. It can't support you. It won't be there for you when things fall apart. And he goes, that's the foolish person. That's the foolish person who hears these words of mine, who hears this gospel, who hears these teachings, but doesn't allow them to become the shape and foundation of their life. And so for Jesus, the difference is, will you put these commands into practice or will you not? One's a wise way, one's a foolish way. Which way are you going to go? And so hopefully if you've noticed over the last several months in our time of transition, we've been moving towards a conversation about discipleship to Jesus that has to do with practice. It has to do with not just what do we believe to be true about God, but how is our faith in Jesus being expressed in our daily lives? How are we going to practice the reconciliation of all things? And so we've come up with this set of six practices, communion, formation, community, hospitality, uh, justice, and Sabbath. And say, we want these practices to mark our life together as the community of Antioch. We want our faith to be lived, not just confessed, but practiced. And there's a lot of different other ways you could frame that up. But I hope you understand why we're making that shift. Jesus says, this is the difference. Either you're going to practice your faith or you're not, and one is wise and leads to uh, a blessed life, and one is foolish and leads to a destroyed life. Now, here's what I want to say, is that um, we could read through the sermon and pick up different points that would say, ooh, that's something I need to change in my life. Right? So, for example, at several points, Jesus says, do not worry. So, as followers of Jesus, he's inviting us to practice non-anxiety. Don't worry. Now, how many of us can just say, oh, Jesus said that? Okay, good. I won't do that anymore then. Another point, he goes, uh, yeah, don't lust. Don't objectify. He's talking to men. He goes, don't turn women into objects. Don't lust. And all of us go, oh, okay. I, I wasn't clear on that, but yeah, I'll do that. I won't do that anymore, right? Um, don't be greedy. Don't be angry. <laughs> like, all this stuff. Jesus doesn't expect that we can just go through and check off all these things right away. Jesus expects that we are going to spend the rest of our lives Letting his life and his vision and his spirit and his power transform us from the inside out. And that's why I like the idea of practice. It's, think about it in the sports world or in the music world. In order to learn how to play, you have to practice. And so as a community, he's calling us to himself to practice his life. To look at something like anxiety or lust or hatred, and go, that's not something that can coexist with Jesus for the long haul. And so I want to give him access to my heart, my soul, my mind, my body, and begin this process of transformation. So this is our part in our sanctification or our spiritual formation, is that we partner with the Holy Spirit as a community giving our attention to the commands of the scriptures 
and pursuing wholeness and healing and reconciliation and Jesus' vision for righteousness and justice. And the hope is that over the course of our lives, we are being formed into people that look like him and live like him. We need each other. We need his spirit. And we also need a willingness and a commitment to be wise and to build our life upon obedience to the commands of Christ. So that's how Jesus ends the sermon. Three chapters. He goes, so you've heard it all. Are you going to do it? Or are you going to not do it? Those are your options. Here's what I want to do. As we end our two-month series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, I'm going to close by preaching the entire Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to try to preach it. I'm not going to embellish. I'm not going to add anything to it. But I'm going to try to say what Jesus has said and is saying and would say were he here today. And here's what's great. I guarantee this will be the best sermon I've ever preached (laughs) and the best sermon you've ever heard. And if you disagree, that's on you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from this law until everything 
is completed. So therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and if anyone murders, they'll be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable in the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and therefore remember that your brother or sister has uh, something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, Come and offer your gift. And settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and then you may be thrown into prison. So truly, I tell you, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. I've also heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. For if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for in sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by, God's, or by earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the great city. And don't swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Aren't even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. But be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father, who sees what's done in secret, he'll reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling on like the pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father won't forgive you. And when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, disfiguring their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, Wash your face so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? See, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll love one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve 
both God and money. So therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body and what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns and let your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single day to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So don't worry. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't judge Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used against you. Like, why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. And if you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you'll give him a snake? If then, even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So in everything, Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. And watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, By their fruit, you'll recognize them.
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. 